This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Happy to have you listening in today. I'm Joel Hilliker. We're going to start with a fascinating story that exposes the corrupt nature of political funding in America. Sam Bankman-Fried is one of the world's richest men, but last week his company, FTX, collapsed after it was discovered to be engaging in illegal activity. What's interesting, this man, Bankman-Fried, donated millions and millions to Democrats in this last election in America, and the depth of corruption here is quite extraordinary. We'll have a conversation with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about this. Watching Russia's war in Ukraine, the outcome here is uncertain. Many say Russia is finished. Certainly Vladimir Putin's reign is over. Others say Ukraine's resilience is going to force Russia into more extreme measures to make sure it doesn't lose this war. Here's where biblical prophecy can be so helpful in knowing the ultimate outcome of these events. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic showing what the Bible says about Russia's and Putin's future in quite remarkable detail. We'll then hear a report about the history of the civil rights movement in America and evidence that as early as the 1950s, it was infiltrated by communists who sought to use it as a weapon against America. Trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau will teach us about this history. And at the end of the program, we'll talk about an important part of having a dynamic personality, building zest and humor into your life. Let's start now by talking about the collapse of FTX. For this, we have via Skype from our office in Britain, Richard Palmer. Hello there. Good afternoon. Tell us, what is FTX? What is this company and what brought it down so suddenly? Yeah, very happy to be here talking about this. I think it's some, this has been one of the most entertaining stories I've been watching for a while. This feels more like a made-for-TV series or something rather than an actual news episode because every day there's some kind of new plot twist in the story. Uh, but uh, so over the last week or so, we've been seeing this giant in the crypto world, FTX, uh, implode. So FTX is a crypto exchange. So if you want to invest in different cryptocurrencies and you know bitcoin being the most famous but now there's a billion of them everyone's got their own crypto token and uh you want to be able to buy and sell and and make money trading those well it helps to have your investment in some kind of an exchange something that makes it easy for you to keep buying and keep selling and this is what ftx was and it, it took a cut of or some fees every time you you buy and you sell, but it was one of the biggest exchanges in in crypto. And uh, you know, last week you had things go very badly wrong, uh, where people started withdrawing money from their FTX accounts and finding out that it was not there. A competitor then said, oh, we'll bail them out. We'll come, we'll buy them. Uh, people at the time thought that this was what's called a liquidity crunch, which is, you know, you go, you say, hey, can I have my bunny back? Uh, and the business says, well, sorry, I can't give it to you, but I, I can give it to you later. I've got some, I've loaned it out. I can go, I can collect those loans. I'll pay it. I can get it to you later. Can't do it right now. That's what people thought. Somebody offered to step in, bail them out, solve the problem. Turned out this was not a liquidity crunch. This was fundamentally, they did not have the money. Period. You know, there was no going and getting it. There was no calling in loans. It was gone. And then as this has played out, just about every day we've unearthed a new level of corruption to the point that there were so many illegal things going on in this company. It seems very, very hard uh, to see a world where the, all the people there avoid jail. Yeah, so let's talk about the, the founder of this company. He has been quite the media darling for, for some time. A lot of people looking at him as, 
as kind of uh, you know the, the the world's next trillionaire uh, and you know an expert on all things crypto. Um, tell us about him and uh, how what happened to his his company. How, he obviously you know one of the world's richest men. Uh, how how deep this this uh, the the whole business model that he had created here was was actually quite corrupt. That's right. So SBF, this is the this media darling. He was on the fortune, the cover of Fortune as the next um, Warren Buffett. Uh, he there was a there's a YouTube video that is in the process of being taken down where he's hailed as the world's most generous billionaire. I think he is now setting the record for the guy to lose the most money in the shortest period of time. He's gone from being worth I think about sixteen billion uh, to maybe one billion, maybe nothing. Uh, but uh, you know there was one one interview that talked about how you know like you said I was talking to the future trillionaire. Here's what else the guy says. Ta- he says while well, talking to him. You know, he talks about how he was impressed, how smart he was, but he said that wasn't the main thing. There was something else I felt, something in my heart, not my gut, just my gut. After sitting 10 feet away from him for most of the week, studying him in the human musk of the startup grind and chatting in between beanbag naps, I couldn't shake the feeling that this guy is actually as selfless as he claims to be. You know, this is, uh, he was going to give away all of his money and uh, was just a, a fantastic human being. This was across all the media. What blows me away is they're still doing it. Today, the New York Times had a puff piece um, about SBF where they managed to somehow not mention fraud uh, or any of these things and still kind of make it sound like he maybe made a, just a bit of an honest mistake or something. But in terms of what actually happened, so... Uh, when you invest, when you put money in, in into FTX, you're putting money into your account, your wallet. And what FTX say literally in their terms of service is this is your money. We're not going to touch it. This isn't even like a bank account where you put money in the bank account, the bank lends it out and gives you interest. They say, no, no, this is yours. What they did was they took that money that they promised not to touch and they loaned it to another company that SBF founded, but that in theory was a completely separate company that just happened to have the same founder. So they took that money, they loaned it to to that company. And then that company somehow managed to lose it. And in doing this, what they did as collateral is the company put up what was basically a loyalty card scheme that FDX created. You know, it, it, it was... Um, you know, completely fictitious. It mean, it, you know, it means nothing. They they put up as collateral something that this company could print unlimited amounts of. Uh, I thought Bloomberg. You know, you can tell you you read some of the financial commentators. They're incredibly creative these days uh, because I think they're blown away by what has happened and that this is even uh, even possible. So he's kind of trying to explain Bloomberg articles going through and explaining what's happening. And he talks about how okay, so they had sixteen billion dollars worth of liabilities, people who'd given them money and they needed to give that back. And they did not have $16 billion worth of assets. You know, he said, um, you, know, you have $16 billion of liabilities and assets consisting entirely of some magic beans that you bought in the market for $16 billion. He says, that's very bad. $16 billion of liabilities and assets consisting mostly of some magic beans that you invented yourself and acquired for $0. What? Never mind the valuation of the beans. Where did the money go? What happened to the $16 billion? Spending $5 billion of custom money on serum, you know, this type of crypto thing would have been horrible. But FDX didn't do that and couldn't have because there wasn't 5 billion of serum available to buy. FDX shot its money, customers' money into some still unexplained reaches of the astral plane and was like, well, we do have 5 billion of this serum token we made up. That's something. No, it isn't. And that's yesterday's news. The more recent one is we've started to get more where um, the Wall Street Journal reported last night that... Okay, you've got FDX and then you've got Almeida as this other company that SBF also founded. This is the company that they loaned the money to and then lost it. So they had another scam going on where, uh, well, two other scams going on, actually. One of them was Almeida as an investment firm. It would say, we'll invest money to you as long as you put that money in savings in FTX. 
So you had this kind of cycle thing where they would loan money out. The company that they loaned the money to would then save that money in FTX. FTX would then loan it to Almeida. Um, so you've got something weird going on there. But also, uh, there was insider trading going on. So if FTX knew, hey, we've got a big deal, business deal coming up with this particular company, uh, we're going to list them on our stocks. We're going to make them tradable. We're going to list them on our exchange. Their valuation is going to go up very quickly. Almeida would immediately invest in that company and then sell that company shortly afterwards. So you know, you've got a Ponzi scheme. You've got insider trading. You've got companies, assets that should be completely separate that are, that are being traded. It, it, it seems like it's hard to find a financial crime that wasn't committed by these guys. And somehow they still didn't manage to make money. You'd have thought if you're carrying out a theft, you would at least walk away with some dollars at the end of it. Uh, they appear to have managed to to also lose everything. Boy, oh boy, that is that is something else. Now, adding to the intrigue is the fact that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was a massive Democrat donor. So this is where some of the money went. Right. This is where some of the money went. Uh, he was he was the behind George Soros. Uh, he was the number two donor to the Democrats in this midterm election. And actually, I don't think Soros, he, he put in a lot of money, but I think a lot of that money is actually kind of heading to the 2024 election. It wasn't actually spent on 2020 purposes. So by some measures, he was the number one donor uh, in the 2022 elections, midterm elections that we've just gone through. Uh, there's, an, another, um, there's another senior partner who did donate to Republicans, but he was donating to Republicans who were you know, pro anti-pandemic measures, you know, who are pro lockdown, pro mask mandates, all of this kind of thing. So, okay, they were backing a different party, but he's backing the left wing of, of that party. So we're talking about big, big players in politics. And not only that, but they're connected to a whole lot of other people like this. So uh, SBF's mother runs a super PAC that, you know, Vice had an article a couple of years ago that was, it was the, the quip was along the lines of, you know, meet the shadowy super PAC that's funneling money from Silicon Valley donors into the Democratic Party. His brother, his brother's job used to be consulting on how to donate for rich people on how to donate money to the Democratic Party. This has been in the family business for a long, long time. So, uh, yeah, he's lost a lot of that money and his not just he is donating money but his whole family is is a core part of the democratic fundraising machinery so uh, all of these democrats that received money from this this man what what does this mean for them and what does this say about i i guess just the the democratic fundraising machine yeah i think you know at best you've got a system where he believed he could get away with all kinds of financial crimes because people were in his pocket. You know, he was, uh, first of all, he's got a lot of links to people to, he would donate to and had a lot of links to uh, people who are on the top committees, you know, the top regulatory committees, the top oversight committees. Some of that is political donations. Some of that is personal contacts. You know, his girlfriend was head of Almeida, and her dad is like the head of economics at, at Stanford University. And so all of these people at the SEC used to work for her dad at some point. Uh, so the people that you know, she knows, they're very intimately connected to the, the regulators that were supposed to be uh, stopping this kind of thing from happening. And then all of the politics, very connected to the politicians that, would, that are supposed to be the writing the laws around stopping this kind of thing from happening. They well, just to knew. just to stop on the on the government point uh, for a moment, this uh, it it defies logic that all of the people who would be involved that there would that none of these people would know any of this that this would be completely outside of their uh, their knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, I I I think that's absolutely right. Even, you know, there was a video I was watching that was made 6 months ago that the guy was making the point that um, that SBF, when he was on someone else's podcast and they asked him, you know, what do you do? How do you make money? Uh, and he explained it. His, his explanation almost perfectly matched the textbook definition of a Ponzi scheme. 
So this video six months ago was saying, well, you know, this guy is a this guy is a load of rubbish. Um, you know, don't don't go anywhere near this company. And this was just some kind of random YouTuber just watching a podcast. So yeah, the signs were there. This cannot be a, a big surprise. And even to have a company that's come that's less than three years old, that's come from nowhere, that is suddenly sponsoring Super Bowl commercials with Larry David and signing 19-year contracts to have their uh, to to buy stadiums and all of these kind of things. Uh, the, and that SBF is regularly appearing before Congress. There's one clip of him lecturing Congress on um, how bad it is to do exactly what he just did. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you, I'm sure there are aspects of this that, that, that have come out more recently that, that just were hidden. But at the same time, it does seem pretty clear that something very badly wrong was going on here. But I think... You know, he knew the regulators were on his side. He knew that because he was a Democrat supporter, that the media was on his side and that the media, if you are supporting climate change and if you're supporting you know, all of these things that, that you love and that, you're, that, you know, that the media loves, that they're going to be on your side. So you're not going to face significant pressure from the media. So you know, he's not going to get political pressure. He's not going to get pressure from the judiciary, not going to get anything from the media. He thought he could get away with murder. You could do anything and because uh, who, who's going to stop you? I think there's that. And, and then I th- you look at, again, their background and all of their parents, are, you know, they've kind of probably been handed a lot of this money by just who their parents are, who their families are. This opens a lot of the doors, a lot of nepotism, means that they're able to be, have access to large amounts of cash without much experience or talent. Uh, and so, yeah, they end up driving it all into the ground. Everything that we're talking about, we I, I just think about Gerald Flurry uh, making this point over and over about the age of exposure and just how much uh, corruption has come out into the open and is brought to light. And it's it's something that God very much wants to do. He wants people to to get a good hard look at just how deep the corruption in this world goes. Everything that you're describing here. Uh, this is on a scale that it's almost hard for our minds to wrap around uh, to understand the full extent of what you're talking about. Maybe you could just finish with kind of the the big takeaways that you have uh, have drawn from what you've studied here. Yeah, I think at best this is a symptom of a thoroughly corrupt state. When you put part, when when supporting your side is above the law when you get rid when everything is lawless this is what happens and um and and this is what people get away with that's at best at worst you know we're looking at elections where there's lots of fishy things going on with voting and then suddenly this is exposed we're still finding out exactly what's going on uh and you know, he's related to all of or in bed with all of these top Democrats. Is there more going on here? Uh, is he more deeply involved? Are we going to see something that starts connecting with with some of some of these dodgy ballots and ballot harvesting and, and things like that? Was what was this money exactly being spent on? Maybe we'll get an even you know, maybe this goes even deeper and, and perhaps we're starting to see something else uh, exposed here. But you, know, you go, Mr. Flurry, when he's talking about a lot of this corruption and he's talking about what, what is happening in American politics, what fundamentally makes our, what he says and, and what the trumpet says different is we're being led by Bible prophecy. And there's a lot of these Bible prophecies, you know, there's things that a lot of Mr. Flurry is saying come directly from the book of Amos, for example. And what I think is fascinating is yet yeah, they have specific things to say about about who's in charge and what's happening now. They also have a lot to say about the subject of corruption and about the wealthy ignoring the law, the wealthy getting away with murder, the wealthy um, you know, harming the poor. It, it kind of goes hand in hand with the lawlessness that we're seeing. And so just even to see this level of corruption, that was prophesied too. And 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 that's fulfilled prophecy. So... I I think that's one of the the other key takeaways for me as well. Quite extraordinary. We uh, we look forward to reading what you write up about this. We've been talking with Richard Palmer about the collapse of FTX and the exposure of corruption in 
in many areas, in economics and politics in America. He's he's working on an article about this. This should be sent out later today in the Trumpet Brief. This is our free email service. If you'd like to become a subscriber, visit thetrumpet.com and sign yourself up. Thanks so much, Mr. Palmer. Oh, great to be here. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. How will the war in Ukraine conclude? The best answer to that question comes from biblical prophecy, as we will now hear in this report from Mihailo Zekich. We're coming up to the one-year anniversary of Russian President Vladimir Putin starting his war on Ukraine. The war course started on February 24th of this year, and when the news broke out of what was happening, there were many, myself included, that thought Ukraine had no chance, at least for long, against the Russian beer. Russia has this powerful military, and Ukraine is such a small country, surely the war wouldn't take too long. But since that time, we can see the war hasn't been going the way Putin would have liked it to. The Ukrainians have put up a bigger fight than people anticipated, and with the news of some of their victories, like the recent liberation of the city of Kherson, many in the news are claiming that Putin is finished, that the Ukraine fiasco is going to mean the end for Putin. Is this so? The trumpet, of course, bases its analysis on Bible prophecy. And what does Bible prophecy have to say about what's going on in Russia right now. The main passage for this is Ezekiel chapter 38. Now the passage starts off, I'll read the first two verses in the New King James Version. Now the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. You could look at verse 8, and it talks about this prophecy being for the latter years, or the time we're living in today. So this is an end-time prophecy, but who are these mysterious peoples? Gog, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal. What do all these strange names mean? Well, here is what Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote in his free booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia. Scholars generally agree that Gog is Russia and that the land of Magog includes China. The descendants of Meshach and Tubal have been found together throughout history. In Assyrian and Greek histories, Meshach appears as Musku, Muski, or Mushki, all names related to the Russian spelling of Moscow. What about Tubal? On the eastern side of the Ural Mountains lies the city of Tobolsk, named after the Tobol River, a name derived from Tubal. Tobolsk was once the seat of Russian government over Siberia and was basically considered Russia's Asian capital. Rosh was the ancient name of Russia, once called Rus. So here is the explanation for what these strange names in Ezekiel 38 mean. They're the ancestral peoples of modern Russia. Mr. Fleury continues, So who is this prince of Russia, Moscow and Tobolsk? The use of all three names shows that this is an individual ruler of all the peoples of Russia, from the west to the east. This giant swath of land indicates the prince will probably conquer more nations of the former Soviet Union. Here's a list of certain conflicts and other incidents that Russia has been involved in. 1999, during the Second Chechen War, Vladimir Putin, who was prime minister then under President Boris Yeltsin, was responsible for the absolute destruction of the Chechen capital of Grozny, prompting the United Nations years later to call it the most destroyed city on earth. 2008, by this point, Putin is the undisputed ruler of Russia, and he invaded the former Soviet country of Georgia, taking over two northern regions and turning them into puppet states. 
In 2014, under the pretext of a sham referendum, Putin annexed Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. In 2020, under widespread protests against his rule, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, who was a close ally of Putin, asked Russia to get involved, and by being Lukashenko's lifeline to power, Putin has taken over Belarus's sovereignty in all but name. And of course, 2022, this year, Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine and proclaimed the annexation of the country's eastern regions. So what does this all mean, then? Well, here's what Mr. Fleury writes in the booklet. When you study these scriptures alongside current events revealing modern Moscow's imperialist direction, you see that Russian President Vladimir Putin is the Prince of Rosh. Now that, of course, is a very sobering statement, and the prophecy in Ezekiel reveals a lot more on what this Prince of Rosh will be up to. Much of it is actually dated to the time after Christ's return. You could read more about that in Mr. Fleury's booklet. But it also shows what Russia is doing today and what it's going to do. And we can get even more information just from verse 2. For example, the word prince, describing this man, Strong's Concordance renders it as meaning the exalted one. Jacinius' Hebrew called lexicon says that the word relates to vapors, which ascend from the earth, from which the clouds are formed. This man wants to exalt himself. And the biblical passage that comes to mind, for me at least, is Isaiah 14, where Lucifer, or in other words, Satan, wanted to exalt himself and lift himself up above the clouds in a coup against God. In other words, this exalted one, this prince of Rosh, he thinks like Satan. He's a megalomaniac. He is a tyrant. What else can we learn about this man from the passage? Well, I'll read verse 4 now from the James Moffat translation. I will bring you along with all your army, horses, and horsemen in full armor, a mighty host, all armed with shields and targes and all wielding swords. So not only is this man a megalomaniac, he is also a militarist. He will build a huge army. He will have war on his mind. What kind of destruction will this man be responsible for? Well, we could look at another passage in Joel 2. This is technically talking about the day of the Lord, the time period immediately before the second coming, which hasn't happened yet. But we could still get a good image on the kind of devastation this man is capable of. A day of darkness and of gloominess, talking about the day of the Lord. A day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong there has not ever been the like, neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire, speaking of the prince of Rosh's army, devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yes, and nothing shall escape them. That was Joel 2 verses 2 to 3. So we can see the kind of power this man is capable of using. And he and his army are a big reason why the day of the Lord is a day of darkness and gloominess. He can take an area that looks as beautiful as the Garden of Eden and turn it into absolute devastation and destruction after he's finished with it. And while technically this is referring to a cataclysmic war in the future, we can already see this kind of mentality and the way Russia is acting today, even just thinking about some of the events in the Ukraine war, like the infamous Bucha massacre or the bombing of Mariupol. When events like that happened, many in the news media were shocked, thinking that this kind of warfare could never happen in modern Europe. It's, in a sense, unprecedented in modern times. But it's only a small foretaste of what this man is going to be responsible for in the future. Now here's another question to ask. Will he act alone? The prophecy in Ezekiel 38 elaborates. Verses 5 and 6 read, Persia 
Ethiopia and Libya or Kush and Put, the ancestral peoples of modern India, with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarma of the North Quarters and all his bands, or the ancestral peoples of modern Japan and Korea. Tie that in with what verse 2 says about Magog or China being in this alliance as well. So we can see here, this is some pretty powerful nations. China, India, Japan, Korea. Mr. Fleury in his booklet even mentions possibly Pakistan. These are massive countries with massive populations and really powerful armies. He'll have the support of many countries with what he's doing. So we see here from the prophecy that Asia will back and support the Prince of Russia in his campaigns and his escapades. What about on the region on the other side of Russia? What about Europe? Where does Europe play into this? There's one prophecy in particular that ties these two, Europe and this Prince of Rosh, together. That prophecy is in Daniel 11. The pertinent prophecy starts in verse 40. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, and with horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries, and shall overflow and pass over. So in this prophecy, the king of the north is referring to this united European power. The king of the south is talking about radical Islamist regimes led by Iran. You can read Mr. Fleury's booklet, The King of the South, for more information on that. But the time setting for this prophecy is when the king of the north is on the rise. He's taking over these powerful countries like Iran. The rest of the prophecy brings up countries like Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia. The king of the north is ascending. And when he reaches the zenith of his power, what happens? Verse 44 shows what happens. But tidings out of the east and out of the north will trouble him. We'll stop there. Of course, to the east and to the north of Europe is Russia. And that word trouble is an interesting word. According to Gassinius' Hebrew called the lexicon, that word trouble has a variety of meanings and associations, including to tremble, to be terrified, to flee in trepidation, to strike with terror. So if one thinks about how powerful this king of the north is going to be, and many prophecies in the Bible show he is going to be the ascendant most dominant power in the world. What's going on in Russia, what's going on with this prince of Rosh, is going to terrify him. As powerful as he'll be, he'll be the one trembling and terrified with what the prince of Rosh can do and is going to do. Far from being finished with Ukraine, we can only expect Putin's power to grow more and more. We can only expect the ferocity of his army and the fear it generates to grow more and more. This can be unsettling for some. But there's good news in all this. Herbert W. Armstrong, the editor-in-chief of our predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, knew about this prophecy and had been writing about it since the 1950s. Now, he didn't know as many details as we do have today, but he knew the general structure of it. To give some perspective, the man in the Kremlin back then was Joseph Stalin, and we've come a long way since Stalin's time in power. But we've gotten to the point now, 2022, 2017, with the publishing of The Prophesied Prince of Russia, and Mr. Fleury has a lot more details about this. In fact, he can even point the finger at one man, Vladimir Putin, and say that he is the prince of Russia. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. We can name names. This prophecy is dated to our time today. This prophecy is dated to the second coming of Christ. So if this man, who is prophesied to be on the scene at the second coming of Christ, is on the scene now, then we know that the second coming of Christ is very, very close. Here's one last quote from Mr. Fleury's booklet. Vladimir Putin is a sign, literally a sign, that Jesus Christ is about to return. 
This is one of the most inspiring messages in the Bible. What we are seeing in Russia ultimately leads to the transition from man-ruling man to God-ruling man. And it is almost here. It is just a few short years away. Can you look at what's happening in Ukraine right now and be inspired? Humanly, it's almost impossible. But God, through his revelation, gives us the outcome of all this, gives us a reason for hope. This is the perspective we need to take away from current events. And in doing so, no matter how dark, no matter how scary future times may be, we can have hope, real lasting hope through them all. This is what the Bible says about Vladimir Putin. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. The civil rights movement in America improved conditions for black Americans in many ways, but it has also created serious problems. History shows that there is a stunning reason for this, as we will now hear in this report from Abraham Blondeau. that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Martin Luther King Jr. said these words on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August 28, 1963. Over 200,000 people descended on Washington, D.C. that day in what became the famous March on Washington. It was a mass protest in support of civil rights and furthering equality in the United States. The I Have a Dream speech became the battle cry for civil rights ever since. Yet the March on Washington and the civil rights movement is not everything it seems. This noble cause was hijacked by some who wanted to destroy the United States. While many participants believed in helping black Americans have a better future, the movement was diabolically infiltrated to further another agenda. This shocking truth was first exposed by the late Herbert W. Armstrong, who warned that America was undergoing a communist infiltration following World War II. The communists successfully infiltrated higher education, the government, and every key institution in the country with the goal of bringing down the country from the inside. One of their more influential and effective hijackings was of the civil rights movement. Black Americans have suffered a great deal. Even after slavery was abolished, major injustices continued for decades. Mr. Armstrong identified two reasons why American slavery was particularly heinous. It denied them education and denied them normal family life. This caused massive amounts of suffering and was a huge hurdle for them to overcome. Their treatment caused resentment towards white Americans, and many white Americans had prejudice that took time to change. Change was needed. As the Supreme Court began to strike down unequal laws, people began to take action themselves in the form of protests, sit-ins, and marches. A consequential step was the formation of community organizations to direct these protesting efforts. This solidified control of the movement into the hands of a few individuals. These community organizers would come to wield massive amounts of power. The first was Martin Luther King Jr.'s Montgomery Improvement Association, or MIA, which was formed in 1955 following the arrest of Rosa Parks. Others were the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the SNCC, and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. Later on, King established the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. They coordinated legal challenges, media relations, events, and protests. It was these organizations that the communists targeted for infiltration. 
What started off as a peaceful movement for change in the 1950s quickly became a call for violent revolution in the 1960s. Instead of pursuing nonviolent actions, many civil rights leaders advocated for race war. Students were rioting on campuses, and people were being killed in the streets on both sides. Mr. Armstrong wrote in a November 1968 Plain Truth, quote, This fast-spreading hatred in black hearts for whites is a recent thing, just since, not before, the civil rights movement began to gain many advantages. And I will tell you what's back of it. End quote. What changed the civil rights movement? Well, the answer is the communists got control. Mr. Armstrong continues in that same plain truth, quote, But in most cases, I can tell you definitely that these riots and student uprisings have been deliberately planned, intentionally provoked, well-organized. I know, too, that it has become somewhat normal to cry communist as a dirty epithet, a nonspecific accusation against any person or group one doesn't like. But when I say communist in this case, I mean specifically just that. The communist movement operates in ways most people do not recognize. It is well organized and efficient. It injects trained communists into many movements and societies, themselves not communist, and subtly influences them into moves and actions that secretly are communist planned and directed. Yet the officers and most members of such organizations are not themselves communist and do not realize they are being used. Today, communists appear on college and university campuses under the guise of the new leftist movement. The student revolt movement exploding on so many campuses into violence is actually a carefully planned and expertly organized effort to overthrow the governments of nations. End quote. These communist community organizers promoted an agenda to destroy the United States. Most of the participants were well-meaning and believed in making a better country, but they were used by their diabolical leaders. Communists believe in class warfare to overthrow the existing government. The civil rights movement was the start of race war as a replacement for class warfare. Some of these communists were behind the scenes, others out in the spotlight. One of the most influential was Bayard Rustin. Britannica Online writes, quote, In the mid-1950s, Rustin became a close advisor to the civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., and he was the principal organizer of King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Rustin later was a chief architect of the March on Washington, end quote. Rustin was a Marxist, as the New York Times writes, quote, A leading strategist in the struggle for racial equality, he was an openly gay, black former communist who had done time in prison as a conscientious objector during World War II, end quote. While King made some inspiring speeches, his right-hand man was an avowed communist. Another was Stokely Carmichael, who joined the SNCC in 1964 and became chair in 1966. Carmichael is the one who coined the phrase black power and was the battle cry for the black militant Marxist movement. Perhaps the most openly extreme was Malcolm X. Mr. Armstrong continues, quote, Then followed the hate mongers advocating violence. Malcolm X broke away from the black Muslims, flared up violently, and soon became the ex-Malcolm. Openly advocating violence, Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown appeared. The television networks gave them liberally of nationwide free time, treating their screaming demands for violence as legitimate news. Black power gained momentum. End quote. These communists used the media very effectively to stir up racial hatred. That propaganda is a hallmark of communist tactics and continues to this day through critical race theory. These men gain control and use these organizations to attack the United States. While some landmark legislation did make life better for black Americans, the legacy of racial violence, ideology of a black revolution, and the method of community organizing inspired a new generation of radical leaders to continue the war. Mr. Armstrong wrote, quote, And do Americans, both white and black, 
realize that back of it all, keeping themselves secretly in the background, is the cunning plotting of communists. They are influencing far more of all this than people realize. It is not Cold War. It is hot war, communist style. It is the old, old strategy of divide and conquer, end quote. The civil rights era might seem like history, but it is still having an impact on everything happening now because it laid the groundwork for a race war in the United States. This communist war has not ended. After that generation of revolutionaries, they waited for another leader to finish the job. In 1991, they found one. Barack Obama graduated from Harvard Law School in 1991. The New York Times recently unearthed a manuscript by graduating Obama and economics professor Robert Fisher. The 250-page paper, called Transformative Politics, outlined how the United States could be transformed. The Times wrote, quote, With the right strategy, Obama argued, Democrats could engineer a political realignment that would begin a new chapter in the country's history, end quote. As a young man, Obama's politics and philosophy was shaped by prominent communists. Obama wanted to fundamentally change the United States. To achieve this political realignment, Obama turned to the communist infiltrators of the civil rights movement. The Times writes, quote, The modern version had its origins in the left wing of the civil rights movement, where it was most forcefully defended by Bayard Rustin. The article continues, but in the aftermath of Lyndon Johnson's landslide 1964 re-election, Mr. Rustin decided the country was ready for a radical push. According to him, abolishing formal segregation was just the first stage of the battle for civil rights. Securing true equality now demanded a campaign to overhaul the American economy and lift up workers of all races. Change at this scale required overwhelming public backing. The article continues later on. The fruits of that education were on display in transformative politics. Written during Mr. Obama's final semester, the manuscript updated Bayard Rustin for the age of Ronald Reagan. End quote. Obama took the community organizing and communist strategies of the civil rights infiltrators and updated them for modern times. This approach has had alarming success. While Obama was in the White House, he purposely stirred up racial strife, just as the communist agitators did in the 1960s. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry exposes this in America Under Attack, in which he writes, quote, President Obama repeatedly made public remarks on racially charged issues, remarks that increased people's mistrust of the police and eroded faith in the justice system. He said things that were provably false, but that played well to the racist radicals. At one point, Obama said racism is part of America's DNA. That means the nation is irredeemably racist. Such ugly, racist remarks are filling the country with hatred and division that will lead to violence and race war. These commentators are either ignorant of what they are doing, or they want a race war. Certainly some extremists do. Bible prophecy tells us they are going to get one, end quote. Ezekiel 5 verse 12 prophesies that one-third of all Americans will die from a race war, a national civil war. The communists in the civil rights movement wanted that outcome, and Obama moved it to the brink. Mr. Armstrong called the threat of race war a super danger to America. It is even worse today. We are now living in the America envisioned by communists like Rustin, Carmichael, and Obama. It is a nation that is under bitter affliction. 2 Kings 14 verses 26 to 27 prophesied that in these last days, America would suffer from bitter affliction caused by a communist force that is trying to blot out the constitution and the biblical principles that underpin the country. This has been an attack 70 years in the making. Mr. Armstrong warned about this infiltration and sought hijack the civil rights movement. Barack Obama is the embodiment of that infiltration 
and is fulfilling the dreams of his communist fathers. This is part of prophesied curses coming on the nation. There is a deep spiritual dimension behind everything happening. The communist infiltration and the full story of Barack Obama is fully exposed in Mr. Flurry's book, America Under Attack. It's time for today's Last Word. Your personality is a power if you develop and train it so as to charm, influence, persuade others rightly, to bring pleasure and encouragement and sunshine and inspiration to others, and to lead them as they ought to be led. These words were written by Herbert W. Armstrong and printed in the Good News of November 1951. He continued, Most people let their personalities stagnate. They never do one thing to improve or develop them. Yet a charming, captivating, and persuasive personality is one of the greatest forces for good with which an all-wise God endowed you. There is so much jam-packed into that paragraph Mr. Armstrong wrote. You have to develop and train your personality, and most people don't. How much do you use your personality to bring pleasure and encouragement and sunshine and inspiration to others and to lead them as they ought to be led? How much do you develop and use your personality as a force for good? In an old reprint series by the Worldwide Church of God, Prepare to be a King, was an article called Build the Personality of a King. And it listed five ways that we can build and develop our personality. And I want to focus on the second point in this article. It was build zest and humor into your life. Zest is Flavor. It means interest and excitement, hearty enjoyment or gusto. Zest and humor are very endearing qualities in a person. This article says a number of the world's outstanding leaders and statesmen have maintained the hearty zest and humor of younger days, and it has even increased their stature as leaders. Learn to laugh even at yourself and at the many funny things that happen in life. One of the great American bank presidents that Mr. Armstrong knew had a sign on the wall behind his desk that said, don't take yourself too seriously. This is really about letting go of our vanity. If we're concerned about protecting our image, we're going to lose the ability to enjoy ourselves. We, we want to be free to express ourselves, to let our personality radiate, to be full of joy and life. Proverbs 15 and verse 13 in the New International says, A happy heart makes the face cheerful, but heartache crushes the spirit. God wants us to be happy and for that happiness to show on our faces. A cheerful face really is a godly trait. Gerald Flory wrote about this in The Love of God, where he quoted 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 41, it says, One star differs from another star in glory. And he wrote, Some stars are greater and more luminous than others. God really wants us to have a lot of glory. He wants you to have the most, quote, star glory possible when you're born into God's family. But even today, we should shine with a certain glory. Our faces should shine with happiness. This is an important aspect of having a royal personality. Mr. Fleury quotes Isaiah 3 and verse 9. He says that this, because of Israel's sins, it says the show of their countenance does witness against them. And he writes, look around and you can see many unhappy people in this world, people in the bonds of sin. Can't you see that when you, you look around at this world that sin has a lot of people very, very unhappy. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of the, the chic thing to have a, a pouty look. You see it in 
in a lot of advertisements and beautiful models who have pouty looks. But Mr. Fleury says, we in God's church should radiate something entirely different. I believe that in a general way, we may be able to determine how much star quality and brightness we will have in the future by how much our face shines today in happiness and joy. God wants to make you happy. He commanded that you be happy, and he's instructed us in exactly how to achieve that. And he quotes John 13. This was the chapter where Christ instituted the Passover, and he was just hours away from being crucified. But he said in that passage, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. This is how to be truly happy. It's by keeping God's law of love. It's by living the give way of life. That really does make us happy. We printed an article in the Royal Vision magazine called Develop the Personality of a Duchess. And the first point in this article is smile often and make eye contact. The Queen and the Duchess of Cambridge are rarely seen without a flattering facial expression. This is not because they have naturally pleasant-looking resting faces. They have put attention and focus into their facial expressions. The first manifestation of a negative personality appears in the face. Little or no smile does not invite others to approach you. On the other hand, smiling breaks barriers. It disarms people and makes you instantly approachable. Proverbs 15 and verse 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Having a merry heart, it certainly makes you much more enjoyable to be around. Life is serious, but we want to keep proper perspective. We need to be able to see the humor in life and to add sparkle and cheer to our interactions with other people. We don't want to go overboard and try to turn every situation into a joke or drawing attention to ourselves out of vanity, but we also shouldn't be shy out of vanity either. We need to have zest and humor that really gives to others, that makes life more enjoyable for everybody around us. Proverbs 17 and verse 22 says, A merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. You know, if you're feeling lousy, just smiling can actually help you to feel better. This Royal Vision article says, our facial expressions are like a teaser to our personality. If your happiness can be seen from a distance because of your smile, you're probably a more friendly and positive person who wouldn't want to approach you and introduce themselves. The person with a constant scowl is unlikely to make many new friends. At Herbert W. Armstrong College, our student catalog includes something that might surprise you. Part of the purpose of the AC education in this catalog, it says, is to present a balanced education with emphasis on character development and right culture. It's about helping develop the whole personality. And it gives seven specific objectives for the students. Number four on this list is to become more outgoing, considerate, well-spoken, and humorous. So part of the way that Armstrong College teaches students to develop the whole personality is by encouraging wholesome humor. God has a wonderful sense of humor. He created humor. Psalm 2 says that God laughs. Ecclesiastes 3 says there is a time to laugh. Build zest and humor into your life. Develop this aspect of your personality. As Mr. Armstrong said, develop and train it so as to charm, influence, persuade others rightly, to bring pleasure and enjoyment and sunshine and inspiration to others, and to lead them as they ought to be led. A charming, captivating, and persuasive personality is one of the greatest forces for good with which an all-wise God endowed you.
I'm Joel Hilliker, and that is it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Richard Palmer, Mihailo Zekic, and Abraham Blondeau. Thanks to Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Ralph Waldo Emerson. People only see what they are prepared to see. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.